listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TNA podcast brought to you by the Nutmeg Assist. Myself Fitwick the host for the show and I'm joined today by Chris my co-host and a special guest a very special guest who's joined us before as well this year. He is the legend the amazing football commentator Derek Ray. Welcome Derek Rithwick, thank you very much for having me on the podcast again. It's been a strange year, but I very much enjoyed our conversation last time. And yeah, looking forward to doing it once more. Same, same here, uh, Derek and Chris. I mean, last time Chris didn't join, but here is Chris again this time. Casey is excited yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Very unfortunate circumstances last time, but this should be good. And uh, happy Christmas to you both. Same to you, yeah, Chris. So we are going to be talking about the Bundesliga season so far. I mean, it's been a crazy and a strange season across Europe or even around the world as well. Even in the Bundesliga that's that's quite reflective and as usual Bayern Munich are at the top after 13 games going into the winter break with 30 points and Bayer Leverkusen are right behind them on 28 points. So Bayern are on the top but they've had some you know tricky situations this season they've not been like the big force that we are used to seeing but it's it's a, it's a it's a really amazing situation Derek but i i'd first of all like to go on to the bottom of the table to the tail end of the table talking about shalka last season when we went into the break when the pandemic struck and we went into a long break Schalke were in a quite decent situation. I think they were seventh or sixth, if I'm not wrong. And life was good, everything was good there. But then the huge downfall. And I don't think, I don't. I mean, I didn't see this coming at all. I mean, the the steep decline, the way they've kind of completely broken down into pieces right now. Derek, what's what's your whole take on the situation of Schalke? And did you actually see this coming? First of all, I'm going to say that I didn't necessarily see this particular scenario coming that Schalke are rock bottom, low on confidence, haven't won a game since their first match of 2020 against Borussia Mönchengladbach, but we have to bear in mind that we were warned about this and it happened right at the beginning of July when the board made a statement Alexander Jobst who's in charge of marketing commercial commercial concerns essentially told the football world that Schalke's expectations their goals would have to be downgraded because of the financial situation more than 200 million euro in debt having to cut costs the pandemic hasn't helped but it's not purely down to the pandemic this has been staring Schalke in the face for a while and so it meant that during the summer they couldn't do business the way a football club would normally want to they had to look for assets to sell the most obvious one was weston mckenny who they effectively sold to juventus it was technically a loan deal but with uh, a view to it becoming a permanent deal really that was just the structure of the deal rather than it actually being a loan deal and then they had to look to be resourceful elsewhere another problem for Schalke was they had a number of players coming back to the club who had been on loan elsewhere who presumably didn't really want to go back to the club because the rot had well and truly set in you know they had gone 16 matches without a victory in the Bundesliga following that game against Gladbach that I mentioned now for people who don't know Schalke who don't follow the Bundesliga closely 
they are part of the essence of top flight German football. They are one of the big clubs. They are a club with a soul, a club with real resonance for everybody in Germany. Everybody who follows the Bundesliga knows Schalke and what they mean. People talk a lot, a lot about the Malocha mentalität, as they say. What does that mean? Well, it really means a sort of a mentality that brings out hard work and desire and graft and never giving up. And Schalke have been the opposite of that in the calendar year of 2020. So things in the new season um, got off to a wretched start with an 8-0 defeat against Bayern in the opening match of the campaign. So it was beamed countrywide, worldwide, if you like, played on a Friday. And David Wagner, the coach, who had been under pressure, but Jochen Schneider, the sporting director, had remained faithful to him, even though there were many voices in the media and elsewhere saying that Schneider really should, in the summer, have got rid of David Wagner. He should have made a change, but he didn't. It lasted two games into this season. Um, that was it for Wagner. Things looked really bleak. Um, Schalke had no confidence, had no discernible way of playing. And so Manuel Baum comes in and he doesn't fare much better. And just recently, Schalke said goodbye to Manuel Baum. And, you know, what do you do after that? Well, you bring in Hoop Stevens, who's, you know, the legendary Schalke coach, the the coach of the Eurofighters, as they're known, won the UEFA Cup back in 1997. Um, that was only for two games. And now they've turned to Christian Gross, who people in England might remember from his time at Spurs. Yeah. He's bounced around Europe, really, um, and, and also worked in other parts of the world. But something of a surprise that he's been brought in. But it really isn't down to one coach. I think it's down to decay at the club that has been setting in for a while. In my preseason predictions, you asked me if I'm surprised. I had them at 15th. And so 18th, not so very far away. So I think those of us who follow the Bundesliga week in, week out professionally, we knew that this was going to be a danger. I just wasn't sure that it would be as terrible as it has ended up being for Schalke. Yeah, Derek. And I mean, like you mentioned, there's been a manager go around with Schalke consistently changing managers this season from David Wagner in the beginning to Manuel Baum and again, so on. But there's been unrest with the players as well. Nabil yep. Benteleb, I mean, Harit. I mean, there's been plenty of criticism from the fans that the players are working hard. I mean, we saw, I mean, I, I read a news uh, just before the road derby, uh, before Schalke played Dortmund, that the fans wanted to see a convincing performance. They, they, they didn't necessarily want a win, but they wanted a convincing performance, which eventually they didn't get. But there's been uh, constant criticism of players, especially I mean Harry, who's who's kind of who's kind of had uh, some pr- pretty bad situations off the pitch as well, and he's not been in good form this season, and especially the Nabil Bentaleb situation as well. So Derek, do you think? I mean, the players there at Schalke, do you think they would look for a move this January? Well, just to be specific about that situation you've raised with Bentaleb. And I mean, Arit, I mean, that was what I called turbulent Tuesday at the time. It was a few weeks ago and it all blew up for Schalke. They decided that internal action would have to be taken. Now, it has ended up with Bentaleb. There is no way back for him. The club will not be working with him going forward. With Arit, it's a bit different because there is a player there. We all know that there's a very talented player in Amin Arit, but there's a sort of a, a suspicion that he's not the kind of player that you would rely upon in a crisis. So he was given a couple of weeks, a denkpause, to use the German word, a bit of thinking time to sort of reflect on 
on you know really where he saw himself as a Schalke player to allow the club to reflect as well. And, and he's now back with the first team. Um, Vedad Ibizovic is the other one we can talk about. Veteran striker brought in, you know, bags of Bundesliga experience, brought in in his late 30s now to kind of provide a little bit of know-how. But that relationship broke down before it really got started as well. And that was also announced that particular week. And so I, I think it's... Um, it's really now a matter of whether we can visualize Schalke getting themselves out of this. Now, um, two or three matches ago, it looked as though they were going to end the losing sequence against Augsburg. They were seconds away from doing so. And then they conceded to, to make it 2-2 at the end. And so they are now, you know, with 16 games at the end of last season without a win, with 13 to begin this campaign, 29 in total. They are staring in the face the all-time Bundesliga record for futility which was set by Tasmania Berlin. Who are Tasmania Berlin? They were basically a team of hobby players, if you like, back in the mid-60s. And they only got into the Bundesliga at the last minute because Hertha didn't have the requirements for the license and they had to bring in another Berlin team. And so Tasmania are actually quite proud of this record of 31 because it's put them on the map. But there's a real danger they're going to be knocked off that map very quickly, the way Schalke are going. Absolutely. Yeah. Didn't someone actually come out recently, Derek, and actually from Tasmania Berlin and say that they don't want Schalke to break this record yeah. because, like you said, it, it keeps them relevant. Yeah, it no, it's quite, true, Chris. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely yeah. true that they, ha- they have said that. And uh, I'm not sure that they're going to get their wish because uh, I, I just think that this can envelop any club, but particularly acute at, at a team like, um, like Schalke. Uh, you know, you, you look at what Schalke is as an entity. And they are this huge, all-encompassing entity. They represent, you know, so much about the working class in that part of Germany and Nordrhein-Westfalen and the Ruhrpott, you know, the big bubbling industrial heart of Germany. And, you know, I think that this is an example, and it's just, you know, a theory on my part, but I think there is something to it. And I'm interested to know if you guys agree. They are the kind of club that really does have a 12th man when it comes to a home crowd. And they've gone most of 2020 without that 12th man. And I think, not saying you take it for granted, but, but that is part of, of what makes Schalke. And you would say the same for many clubs in Germany and in other parts of the world as well. Without the, the crowd, they are at a big disadvantage, especially when you are mired in a financial crisis, when you have the wrong balance of players. They've had that for a while. So this has been coming to them you know, for, for some period of time. And all these things factored together just make it very difficult for Schalke at the moment. I'm, I'm certainly going to mourn their, um, their, their falling into the, the Zweite Bundesliga, the second division, if it does come to that. But at the moment, all roads point to that eventuality. Yeah. And, but yeah, just a quote on what you just said there, Derek. I mean, there's two ways of looking at the fan situation. I fully believe that the fans, Schalke wouldn't have went on this run if the, if, if the pandemic didn't happen, given the the passion of the fans and the amount of them. I, I believe their stadium sells out at 60,000 seats. Yep. If I'm not wrong, I mean, the amount of impact that the fans have on that club, that they are Schalke, as, as far as I'm concerned. They, I, I can't see them have go, going on this loser, or sorry, this, this run without winning if the fans would have been allowed in the stadiums. But you've mentioned as well, but the, the, they would still have a massive issue at, at the club given given the structure or given how badly they are structured. And with relegation seeming quite 
obvious at the moment. I, I'm interested to know you. I can't see them coming back up anytime soon. I'm, I'm probably following following Hamburg suits. I mean, that could be two two giants of German football in the second tier who don't look like come, coming back up anytime soon. Yeah, I take your point. It's not easy to bounce back from the Zweite Bundesliga once you are relegated. And Hamburg would be a strong example of that. You know, based on the last couple of years, the supposition was that because of the strength of the club, the size of the club, they would automatically come back up. Well, you know, it hasn't happened for them. And it didn't happen for Nuremberg. Uh, you could mention Hannover as another big club in the second division, trying to make it back up. Um, Stuttgart, the one team in recent years who've gone down and have managed to come straight back up. They've done that twice in recent years. But it is no bagatelle. And um, that is a very difficult division to get out of. Of course, in normal times, we're talking about the division, the second division, with the, the highest average attendance of any second division in Europe. So not the championship in England, but the Zweite Bundesliga in Germany. And that, again, sort of just adds to the degree of difficulty. Now, again, we're not at normal times, so we don't have this supporters factor. But it, it just illustrates the point that you don't just sort of swan your way back into the, the yeah. top division. So it will be difficult because the balance of the team is wrong. And you do need a different balance to get out of the second division. You need different players. You need more warrior types, I think it's fair to say. Um, and at the moment, that's what Schalke really are lacking. Um, what I would say is that all good German clubs, all German clubs, full stop, they, around this time of year, they make their plans, if they are near the, the foot of the table, they make their plans for the second division. You know, and they will, Schalke will have a plan in place already for what life in the second division would be like. And it might not be pretty, and they're going to have to be a little bit lucky, and, and maybe they will be, and, uh, and come back up if they go down. As I say, they're not down yet. There, there is time for them technically to to rectify matters, but I'm just not sure about the trajectory for them. When I look at the teams, you know, who you would say are their rivals, uh, and I'm thinking of the likes of Köln and even Werder Bremen, who have gone into a little bit of a slide recently. I just see them as being that bit better off uh, from a playing standpoint uh, in comparison with Schalke. Yeah. Yeah, Derek. I mean, mo moving on from Schalke to the top end of the table now, I mean, Chris, Chris definitely has some questions about the top, the, the two big clubs, Dortmund and Bayern. But before coming on to those two, I'd just like to mention two clubs, Union Berlin and Stuttgart. Two clubs who's, who's actually surprised me this season, <clears throat> especially Union Berlin, who's, who had a really amazing game against Bayern earlier this season. And they sit in sixth place now with 21 points, one point behind Borussia Dortmund. I mean, if you had to sum up this season so far, I mean, how, how would you put it? Because this is this is what I call, you know, strange. And th this is why I call this season strange, because we're seeing some amazing results come come right into our doors. Well, I would sum up Union, first of all, by saying big surprise, uh, pleasant surprise, because, again, I thought they would be a team in the lower reaches of the table around where I expected Schalke to be to be quite frank, playing not very attractive football, but efficient football. That's what Union did in the first season in the Bundesliga, first ever season in the top flight of German football. And, you know, they did it with set pieces. Christopher Trimmel is one of the best deliverers of a dead ball in German football. 
Um, they relied on Sebastian Anderson last season. He has since moved to Köln, his aerial ability. But I think they knew as a club, Oliver Hunert, who's the head of the pro football department, and coach Urs Fischer, that they had to evolve, that they had to be more than just a hard-to-beat team that could do damage <laughs> with set pieces and, and maybe on the counter-attack. And so they signed Max Kruse, who is not everybody's cup of tea, but one thing that we would all agree on with regard to Kruse is he is fabulously talented. He's a bit like a, a sort of a, a two players in one combination. Yeah. He can be a striker. He can be a creative, um, you know, quarterback type, to use that American football word, um, with a lovely left foot. He can open up any defense. Uh, but I wondered if that was the right setting for him, you know, against more hardworking players. It's turned out it, it has actually been a very good setting for him in Kopenick. Um And they've figured out a way to make him the focal point and others to do the, the, the harder work around him. Uh, now, he's been injured for the last few weeks leading up to the, the Christmas break, the short Christmas break this year. And that led many to suggest that, that Union would probably go sliding down the table. Well, not a bit of it. So they've gone back to to using their older values, but other players have chipped in as well. You know, so somebody like Robert Andri, you know, who was not a particularly heralded player a year or so ago, you know, he has stepped forward and, and done really well for Union. And, you know, from top to bottom, they're just a very well-organized team. They have extended the contract of Urs Fischer and of Oliver Hunert, the two gents who I mentioned earlier. And yeah, more power to Union for what they are doing in a football sense against the odds. Now, Stuttgart, you spoke about as well. And I love the Stuttgart story because, as I said, they went down. They're a huge club. Uh, let's not forget, Stuttgart are one yeah. of the biggest clubs in Germany. Maybe younger people yeah. don't think of them as such, but just read up on their history. Uh, and again, a club, and Chris spoke about this earlier, about Schalke getting 60,000. Stuttgart at normal times, you know, they sell out their stadium, the Mercedes-Benz Arena, more than 50,000, you know, so that is the norm there. There are high expectations. There was pressure on them to win promotion. And again, we've got to talk about the structure. And I think we, we often do hit upon the structure with German teams with regard to clubs who get it right and clubs who get it wrong. Now, Schalke have got it wrong at the moment. Stuttgart have got it right. And it's a small decision-making team. And it's Thomas Hitzelsberger, who is the chairman of the board. Um, by way of full disclosure, he's a friend of mine. He's somebody I've worked with. Um, as a broadcaster many times before, and um, just a very capable guy at the top of that organization. He was quite the, the footballer as well, as, as you'll recall, um, with, uh, with the ability to score spectacular goals. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah the, the hammer. Um, uh, but what he's done is he's, he's got um, Sven Mislintat as a sporting director, who Arsenal fans in England will remember, was the head of recruitment there. He had been the chief scout at Borussia Dortmund, discovered no end of young, talented players. Didn't quite work out for him at Arsenal for whatever reason. But Thomas Littlesperger knew all about how good he was and brought him to Stuttgart. So he looks after the, the player personnel. And then, this is really interesting, they have a coach in Pellegrino Matarazzo, who um, probably sounds Italian to you and, and is actually Italian, but he's also American. So born yeah. and brought up in the USA um, in the, the tri-state area, the New York City area, and very intelligent, went to Germany at a young age uh, without any fanfare to play lower-tier football. Nobody really knew of him in the USA. Nobody knew of him in Germany. He built a life for himself in Germany, working his way you know, through the playing ranks, but not at a high level, but then as a coach, and was at Hoffenheim with Julian Nagelsmann and learned an awful lot there. And 
Hitzelsberger knew that that was the sort of coach who would work at a club like Stuttgart and wanted to give him the chance. Now, it didn't go brilliantly to begin with in the second division. There were ups and downs, especially just after the pandemic. There was talk that he might be fired because he'd only been brought in um, in December time, so a year ago. Um, but instead of firing him, Hitzelsberger did the opposite. He extended his contract. He sent him a message to say, we believe in you. We believe in your methods. And this is what we're going to do. And now go out there and do it. And he did. And he won promotion. And the thing I like about Stuttgart now that they're back in the Bundesliga and, you know, they are a Bundesliga team. They should really always be a Bundesliga team. Um, they give young players a chance. They, you can see already the imprint that Mislintat has had on that team with the recruitment policy. And it all comes together in this very attractive package. And you only need to look at the recent game against Borussia Dortmund when they, yeah. they absolutely thrashed them 5-1 um, in Dortmund. Um, to, to get an idea as to what Stuttgart and the current guys are all about. And um, they will continue to play young players. And, and that really has been heartening to, to see. And, uh, you know, when I watch some people like Kuri Bali, I, I always sort of go, yeah, that's somebody who can, who can get me out of my seat when I, when I watch him play. And very well organized, good structure, um, a club doing it the right way, surpassing expectations, yes, because I thought they would stay up, but maybe not with the degree of comfort that it you know, looks like at the moment. So, yeah, Union and Stuttgart, two of the success stories for sure. And let, yeah, and let's I not mean, forget, oh, sorry, Ru, I just, just wanted to, before you move on, let's not forget that it with Stuttgart, you mentioned the structure of the club, but they're actually, the youth academy that they've got in place is never going to go away, is it? I mean, the players that they've produced out of that academy. I mean, I, I mean, you've got Serge Gnabry, Timo Werner, Sami Kadera, Joshua Kimmich. Um, I mean, the, the list is, is quite endless. I mean, that, that's just to name a few, really. When you've, got an, when you've got an academy like that in place, that just continues to produce quality players. And I'm sure there'll be a, a next bunch of players that comes through. You can't really fail to ever... You can't ever really... Stuttgart are never going to end up in the same position as, say, a Hamburg or a Schalke because they're always going to have that talent production. Yeah, although the only thing I would say about that is that Schalke, who we discussed earlier, Schalke have maybe the proudest tradition when it comes to youth academies in all of Germany. You know I mean? Oh, people, yeah. People yeah. marvel at Schalke, but you see where they are. So I absolutely take the point. I mean, Stuttgart do this very well. And if you go back to the, the early 2000s, the, um, the Jungenwilden uh, team at that time, Felix Magat was the coach and all those young players who came through at around the, the same time. Um, you know, that was a sort of a, a, a team that we all remember. And yeah, they are proud of their traditions. But if you don't have the people in the right places who are making the decisions about the balance of a, a squad, then sometimes the youth academy doesn't necessarily help you. It can maybe be an asset. It can maybe mean more money coming into the club, but it's all about how you use it. And um, I just think that, that they have the right people making those decisions in Hitzelsberger, yeah. Mislintat, and in uh, Matarazzo, the, the head coach. Yeah, I mean, you, you spoke about Stuttgart and Union there, Derek, and I mean, normally you would say, okay, this probably is pretty strange, but even the statistics favor them. When you look at the expected goals differential, uh, Union are third on the table and Stuttgart are fifth, which is 
very promising as well so it's not it's not a fluke or it's not just luck or anything it's proper performance that that has put them where they are on the table right now so so it, it, it's 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 actually down to tremendous performance yeah it's been very progressive football from both i think we have to say that it's been very watchable and you know full marks to to those two clubs who you've highlighted exactly and moving on now direct to another club bayer leverkusen i mean i don't want to talk about the the club's performance because that that's been really good this season but i want to pick a player florian wurtz the youngster who's who's seen as the successor or the successor to kai havertz who is sold for huge money to chelsea and havertz is kind of finding it tough to adjust in his first season which is quite expected as well but Florian Wirtz, he's played more than 80% of the season so far for Bayer Leverkusen in the Bundesliga. He's he's like wrapped up more than nine, 980 minutes, which is really amazing for a youngster who's just 17. He's racked up two goals and four assists as well. So it is a promising start. But do you think, uh, Derek, that the kid is again going to be the next sensational or generational talent? Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And we never quite know <laughs> at, yeah, a young age, um, you know, to what extent a player is going to develop. But I'd have to say the signs are very positive where Florian Wirtz is concerned. And you'll remember that there were quite a few eyeballs on him when he made his debut because uh, this was, of course, at a time when the Bundesliga was the only major show in town among big leagues in the world at the, the beginning of the pandemic when the other big leagues, if we want to call them that, weren't back in business, weren't allowed to be back in business. And um, Peter Boss had real confidence in Florian Wirtz. He hadn't been at the club that long. He'd been plucked from Köln, um, Leverkusen's neighbours. And that's an interesting story in itself because anybody who's been to that area knows that Köln are actually the, the much more avidly followed club. You know, Leverkusen just a few kilometers away but Leverkusen are in a position to develop players better they have a financial advantage over Köln and um, you know that's the way it is so he made a decision for himself to go to Leverkusen just you know up the road in order to further his own career and yeah the signs are really good with Florian Wirtz he's he, capable of doing so many different things he's had a really good opening 13 match days I think it's fair to say he scored a couple of goals he's set up four and um what i like about him and this is where the, the comparison with with kai havertz comes in is that he can you know play in multiple positions you can sort of push him around the front um you know probably could play deeper if he had to as well and you know that will be part of his development and i think he's in very good hands at leverkusen under peter boss who um, is showing us now just what a good coach he is it, it was unfortunate for him at uh, dortmund when he was in charge there for that very brief spell uh, in 2018 and um here we go he's he's you know doing it with Leverkusen although it was disappointing for them that they lost to Bayern just before the christmas break in the manner that they did yeah yeah um, even 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 creativity wise uh, derek if you look at florian wurtz's performance so far even statistically he's not far behind someone like joanny reina who's like kicked on to the scene and even Leroy Sané he's not far behind them in terms of creating shots for creating short short opportunities for his teammates so all the signs are there like you said even statistically and even visible to the naked eye as well so 
yeah, that's 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 pretty fair. Yeah, I I like what I see. I enjoy watching him. Um, I want to give him time because I I've seen this before with young players. You can have peaks and troughs. Uh, even Kai Havertz did. Um, it's not spoken about so much, but at the beginning of last season, he went through a little bit of a trough. Um, but of course, he'd been setting such high standards for himself that it, you know, it, it didn't get discussed that much. And and it can take a player time in a new environment. But uh, Florian Wirtz, I would suggest, is a day we're going to be hearing about for for many years to come. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just moving on, uh, Derek, I mean, we, we've touched upon when we've been speaking about uh, Union Berlin and Stuttgart and now Leverkusen. Oh, uh, and obviously the inevitable Borussia Dortmund question is going to, or the Borussia Dortmund subject is now going to pop up. Um, I mean, it seems to me that Dortmund at the moment, they they constantly, after each season, miss out on opportunities to actually take the title race to Bayern Munich or miss out on opportunities opportunities to overcome them it seems like this year it, it obviously isn't this, this this season already is let's just qualify for the champions league i just wanted to know what your your thoughts were on the second of lucien favre and whether it was the right decision or whether it was just about time you know it's an interesting question i like lucien favre i like his football i think he's a, a really good educator i think he's actually, in many respects, the right coach for younger players. I think he knows how to bring out young talent. But I'm not sure that he is, as Germans would say, a Meister trainer. I'm not sure he is somebody who is a, a natural coaching winner of titles. Yeah. And that's what Borussia Dortmund at this stage probably needs. I suppose, though, we could argue this both ways. I mean, if you are a club like Dortmund that has a very different business model than, say, Bayern, if you are... Dortmund with this business model of essentially bringing in very good, very young, talented players, polishing them and then selling them on. Is that a recipe with anybody in charge to win titles? You know, I I think you can you can debate that, you know, Bayern don't do that. I'm sure we'll get to Bayern later. But, you know, when you go to Bayern, you go there mostly um, if you come from the outside when you're at the peak of your powers. That's when you go to Bayern. When you go to Dortmund, it seems you're going there now when you're 17, 18, 19, 20, um, and maybe not staying there too many years beyond that if you're a really special talent. So yeah. I think we have to you know, be fair to Lucien Favre. Yes, he did lack a certain something. And the problem is that as long as I've been going to Dortmund for games, you know, I've been hearing about the comparison with Jurgen Klopp. And it's an understandable comparison, but there is only one Jurgen Klopp. Not everybody can be Jurgen Klopp. Not everybody can have those qualities. Um, yeah. And, and Lucien Favre was never pretending to have those qualities. You know, he's quite a quiet, fairly introverted guy. Um, somebody who sort of keeps himself to himself. He, he wasn't naturally emotional. And I think, you know, my feeling about Dortmund is they are such an emotional fireball of a football club that they almost need that kind of fire in their coach. They need somebody who, who reflects that in terms of you know, how he goes about his business. Now, you could say Thomas Tuchel had some of those qualities, but from a man management standpoint, there were issues there, you know, very clearly yes. when he was in charge, even though the football was brilliant. I would say the football has been brilliant with Favre at times as well. But the big Achilles heel has been against streetwise teams who are organized. And you think back to earlier this season against Augsburg, who, you know, got their tactics spot on. They let Dortmund have the ball. They, um, you know, went in and won their challenges. 
They relied on set plays. They took their opportunities and they beat Dortmund pretty comprehensively 2-0. That was it. Um, similarly yes. against Köln, um, who went in there with a plan and executed that plan and outdid them. Stuttgart, as I said, wiped the floor with, with Dortmund and that was to be the, the last straw as far as the top brass at Dortmund were concerned with regard to Lucien Favre. Um, but I sometimes think that we, and I'm guilty of this myself, I sometimes think that we maybe are a bit too harsh on Borussia Dortmund in terms of what they ought to be. Um, and if this is going to be the business model, and it is, and it is an exciting business model because, I mean, you're getting to see, and you mentioned Reina earlier on, um, Erling Haaland, um, Reina, Sancho, Jude Bellingham. You're seeing a lot of these young players coming through, but making their mark at a young age and the knowledge that they're not going to be there forever. But again, I come back to that question. Is that going to be a recipe to to win titles, um, to, to be better than Bayern over the course of a season, to be better than Leipzig even now over the course of a season? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's it's an interest that me and Rishwick have talked about this topic now a few times on a few on a few different shows and I, I've put the question uh, to people such as yourself and guests whether they whether they actually want to be the number one club in, or the number one club in Germany what is the aim of this club because it seems to me that they, they're happy playing second fiddle to Bayern Munich now they've missed out on opportunities uh, for example the, the Niko Kovac year they, they blew a seven point lead towards the end of the year. Even the year that Carlo Ancelotti got sacked, I thought there was an opportunity for Dortmund to go and win the league title that year. Uh, I know Jupp Anker's come back and eventually won it for Bayern Munich, but there's been opportunities over the last couple of years to not, I don't want to defro- not say defrone Bayern Munich, because Bayern Munich will always be the number one club because of, of their superiority, but on the actual pitch, there's been opportunities to win honours. And when he sat Lucien Favre, I was sort of, Okay, we, we, we sort of knew that he was going to go at the end of the season because of his contract up and there was always question marks whether he was ever the right fit with Dortmund given the nature of the way Dortmund are as a club and I suppose there was some truth to, to that. But I just thought it was quite, it was like, well, what, did, what, what do you expect the new guy to come in and do now? Do you expect him to go on and win the title? And is the club set up for that? Or what do you think the remit of the new manager will be? whoever it may be. Well, on the short term, it's uh, Edin Terzic. I mean, he's there to the en- until the end of the season and he's somebody with knowledge of the club, having been part of the the, the coaching staff, knowledge of the area, being from Zawaland just around the corner, uh, yeah. even though he also has a Croatian passport. His remit really is to get them through the season, but they, they believe that they have put somebody in place who will be more a person who the fans can identify with, um, who the players should respond to because they know him quite well. And there is an opportunity for him. I mean, it's maybe not a huge opportunity, but there is an opportunity for him if things go well um, for the job to be his. I would say it is unlikely. I would say that they're probably looking at at a different candidate come the summer. Um, But the main thing will be, and I think this is why they decided to to pull the trigger on uh, Favre, the, the, the main thing will be to make sure they're in the Champions League next season. And here's what Dortmund have observed, that Bayern are still Bayern, even though they have been vulnerable defensively at times in the early part of this campaign. They're still the best team in Europe. Leipzig are better than they were. Leverkusen are better than they were as a team. Wolfsburg are better than they were as a team. So 
there is competition there. You know, there is competition yes. for those um, for the top four, something you would think Dortmund would take for granted, but they can't. The other thing, just to go back to business models, I think it's important to remember is that, you know, Borussia Dortmund some, you know, 15, 16 years ago were in, you know, real financial trouble to the point where we wondered if their existence would be threatened. Um, and, you know, people have long memories. And so in the years following that, and obviously they were successful with Klopp, but it was a different era. You could take yeah. on Bayern more easily in that era than I think you can now from a financial point of view. And there's a grim determination in Dortmund to never go back to, to what was the case in the early 2000s because, I mean, it was horrendous, um, the financial crisis that enveloped Borussia Dortmund back then. So um, this is really where this business model comes from, that, um, yeah, a team, a club wants to win honours and, you know, Dortmund do have a recent day of Bay Pokal on their, uh, in their trophy cabinet um, but they have been the, the nearly team, you would have to say. But, you know, maybe, maybe that that makes a lot of sense rather than, you know, going all out and saying we're going to spend money we we don't have. Uh, as I say, look at some of the other bad examples of that around Europe. And um, so, you know, I think that is something that we have to take into account. But but I, I, I do think that if things are just kind of on an even keel between now and the end of the season, let's say they get into the Champions League, they finish third or fourth then, you know, I think they would be looking at, at somebody else next summer as their coach. But remember, it has to be somebody who fits the philosophy. It has to be somebody who fits yeah. the club. It's not like England where you bring in a big name and you let that big name sort yeah. of recarve out the identity of the club and do it his way. That, that would never happen at Borussia Dortmund. So um, that's why I think some of the names that, that were bandied about initially um, – really would not would not be good fits for this particular club. Yeah. Yeah. One question, Derek. I mean, Edin Terzic, the, the guy who's been appointed now to you know, take Dortmund over till the end of the season. I mean, he has a history with the same club. I mean, he was the youth coach when Jürgen Klopp was at the club. So yep. it's not like he, he is not, he's not, he's completely new or anything. He has worked before. He knows how the club works. He... He knows uh, Zork as well. Uh, and, I mean, sporting director Zork, he, he's actually praised Tezic, saying that they believe in him and that's why they have given him that role till the end of the season. But in case it this doesn't work out, who do you think or who, in your opinion, would be probably one or two of the possible candidates and why? This is actually a patron question from our patron Dieter. Well, it's a really good question. And I think the obvious candidate is somebody who's plying his trade just about an hour or so away from Dortmund, a little bit more than an hour, is Marco Rose of Borussia Mönchengladbach. And I think that his brand of football, which, you know, it is the, the sort of the, the, the Leipzig school. He was at Salzburg before he was at Gladbach. But his brand of sort of power football, emotional football, I think is something that would strike a chord very much in Dortmund. I think if you look at his personality as well, he does wear his heart on his sleeve. He's not the shy retiring type. Um, just a lot of boxes are ticked when you think about that. And um, there is a release clause uh, with regard to Rose. So he, he wouldn't be cheap, but he would be gettable for them. And if they decide that he's their man and he decides that Dortmund is his club, no guarantees there, of course, on either, then you could 
very easily see that happening. Um, so I, I think he has to be the, the very strong favorite. The other name that has come up, but I, I personally think it's a bit too early for this particular gentleman, is uh, Jesse Marsh. And I mentioned Salzburg earlier. Uh, Marsh has made his mark with Salzburg. I think, you know, in no small measure due to that um, video that went viral of him giving his halftime team talk in the Champions League last season. I think people quite like that. Um, and obviously there's much more to Jesse Marsh than just a, a video that goes viral. But, um, you know, I, I think he is definitely on the radar of Bundesliga clubs. I just have a difficult time visualizing somebody going straight from Salzburg into, and I use the, the term I used earlier, the emotional fireball that is Borussia Dortmund. I, I think that that, you know, could be fraught with danger for somebody like Marsh. And I would think that while the Bundesliga is on his radar and he's on the radar of Bundesliga clubs, I think he needs a softer landing. Now, it, it is intriguing to me. If Rose were to end up at Dortmund, I could quite easily see Max Ebal and the decision makers at Gladbach being attracted to Marsh. I think other clubs, I think smaller clubs than Gladbach would be as well. So my guess would be Jesse Marsh will end up in the Bundesliga somewhere next season, just not at Dortmund, unless Marco Rosa, for whatever reason, decides he's happy where he is at Gladbach. But I, I do think if you're an ambitious coach um, and Dortmund come calling, difficult to turn that one down as a German. Yeah. And would it be completely beyond the, completely out of the question for Thomas Tuchel to return to Dortmund, Derek? Yeah, I think it would. Yes, I think it would. I think the, the damage that was done there, the relationship damage... Um, you know, when you think about uh, Aki Vatske, uh, who is the senior decision maker at Dortmund and Tuchel, and um, you think about the words that were exchanged, I'm thinking particularly after the um, the bus explosion that I was in Dortmund yeah. that night when it happened. And, um, uh, you know, Thomas Tuchel didn't take kindly to, as he saw it, being sort of left out of all the discussions about what should happen next and when they should play the game against Monaco. And, but it wasn't just that. That was really sort of the, the last straw in uh, what had been an uneasy relationship. So uh, while there's great respect for Thomas Tuchel, I think they've been there and done that. And I think Marco Rosa, were he to be available, I think would represent a, a better fit, both personality-wise and from a coaching point of view. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just before we move on uh, from Dortmund, do you think Marco it will depend on how Mönchengladbach actually perform this season? I mean, they haven't had the line in eighth position. They've a bit, a bit a bit stop-start. I know they were very good in the Champions League up until the final game, of course, but they haven't really got going just yet in the Bundesliga do you think it, their performance will have any kind of effect on whether they go go for them whether Dortmund go for them or will it just be purely because of that minimum fee release that uh, that that release clause I think Dortmund would probably look at it from the point of view that um, you know form is temporary class is permanent and yeah. I think there's a lot to like about Marco Rose when you just look at his overall development and not every coach gets it right every single phase of every season and I think this yeah. has been a challenging phase for clubs who are in the Champions League who are, who are in Europe full yeah. stop and trying to balance the twin demands um, at a time of the pandemic at a time when things are a lot more uncertain and so I think that will be taken into account um, I would agree Gladbach have 
been a little bit off the pace and poorer than I thought they would be. There's still time for them to to make up the, the lost ground. But, you know, what they've done in the Champions League really does stand out because that yeah. was no given, was it? When you looked at the draw, I think you'd have said at the start, that's a really difficult group for Gladbach to get out of. And so, in a sense, they have prioritized that and um, they'll have a bit more time to focus on the the Bundesliga in the, the second part of the season, given the way the schedule works out. So unless they were to really, you know, plumb the depths and fall to, you know, sort of, you know, 11th or 12th or something like that. And, uh, and even be thinking about relegation, which I can't see with regard to Gladbach, yeah. then I would imagine um, that Dortmund would still look very favorably on the idea of, of hiring somebody like Marco Rosa. Yeah. Yeah, Derek. Um, finally, moving on to the last segment of this podcast. And I don't think a Bundesliga dis- discussion would be complete if we don't mention Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich and it. So they've been, they won the European Cup or UEFA Champions League, as it's called right now, last season. They won the Super Cup as well. And they've been running right over the last eight to 10 months since Hansi Flick took over. And this season as well, they are on top of the table right now, but it's not been like a roller coaster ride like it was last season or a dominant, or they, they are not in a dominant fashion right now. It's, it's quite, you know, competitive at the top. And, but one player who is really standing out and who has had a magnificent year is Robert Lewandowski. 17 goals already this season in the Bundesliga, if I'm not wrong. What a player, Derek. And I mean, it's, it's, it's like Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He gets, you know, better as he's aging. It's like he's aging like a fine wine, if you, if you have to put it. So, <laughs> I mean, even his physical condition as well, I see that he's, he's more fitter, more hungrier than usual. He wants those goals and he wants to help his team win titles. So, I mean, I mean, obviously, I think this probably would be the obvious answer, but do you see him again rapping or getting his hands on the golden boot or do you think Erling Haaland might have a chance? I think my money would still be on Robert Lewandowski. You probably can't see this, but I'm actually wearing today a a T-shirt that was given to me by uh, Bayern's New York office and essentially says on it with an image of Lewandowski cheering, uh, best nine in the world. And that's what he is. Uh, but actually, not just the best nine in the world. He's he's the best player in the world. And, Absolutely. you know, I'm delighted that he's received recognition on that front. Finally, um, I think it's long overdue. And I don't get to vote for the, the best FIFA awards. But I was able to cast my vote for the Guardian Awards. The Guardian does its uh, top 100 male footballers of the year at this time every year. And um, I was privileged to be amongst the panelists. And suffice it to say... Um, I didn't even have to hesitate before putting Lewandowski in my number one slot. And that was the case, I think, with the majority of of media and ex-players and coaches who made up that panel. Um, I I think he is he just gets better. Uh, You you said it very well, but like a fine wine, he gets better and better. He gets more complete. And even though he is uh, in some respects a sort of a, a, a solitary predatory figure on the football pitch. He's a killer. Um, He does it all in the context of the team. It's not about him. You never get the feeling that it's about Lewandowski for Lewandowski. You know, he wants to do it as a fully fledged team member. Now, I think the interesting part of the discussion is he had this 
flirtation a couple of years ago with Real Madrid. Many thought he would go to Real Madrid because he did want to win the Champions League. It was the one thing that he felt was missing from his CV. He wanted to win the Champions League, and maybe he had doubts about whether Bayern could afford him that opportunity. But he stayed at Bayern. He's got his reward now. And by all accounts, he um, and this tells you everything about Lewandowski. He, he had a conversation with Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, the chairman of the board's former Bayern striker himself, after they won the Champions League by beating PSG. And what he said to Rummenigge was, he said, do you know why we won the Champions League this season? And Rummenigge said, no, tell me why. And he said, we won the Champions League this season because of how strong our bench is, because of the options we had in terms of players coming on as a substitute. That's what made us European club champions. And I think for Lewandowski to say that, it does tell you everything about the man. It is not about him. I mean, he is amazing, but he recognizes that being amazing on a one-off basis, being amazing independently will get you accolades here and there, but it won't win you trophies. And, you know, Bayern ultimately did it as a team. They had a special individual in Lewandowski. That is for sure. Um, But the team thing was what came out. And in Hansi Flick, they had the coach who was able to bring all that together, to reintegrate Thomas Müller when he was out of the picture, to make one or two tweaks to make everything more efficient as a team rather than just a group of individuals going about their business individually. And yeah, that to me represents the story of Bayern in 2020. And do you, do you think, Derek, I mean, I mean, they're still a very, very good team. Uh, obviously, over the last couple of weeks, I've watched them and, and, and they do look tired. Yep. There's no question about that, but they're still getting the win. The players look like they need a bit of a rest because... Do you think that squad depth's still there? I mean, they got rid of, they let Thiago go to Liverpool given the contractual issue. I believe that he would have left on a free transfer last year. So I think that deal suited both parties. They brought in, I think the main signing was Leroy Sané. Now, he's not settled as quickly as what many people thought he would have. And there seems to be a bit of an issue there given the fact that he was substituted after, after being brought on as a sub. What, what do you think? What, what, do you know of any issues surrounding him, or is it just a purely an attitude issue? I think it's an interesting one. I think he has not yet become a, a Bayern player as such. Of course, he didn't have a Bayern background. He was product of the Schalke Academy. He was coming off a long-term injury, and you know, I think it does take time in a new environment. You know, we briefly spoke earlier about uh, Kai Havertz and you know going to a new environment in England. I think similar for. Leroy Zane, um, you know, but I have every expectation that we will see the best of him. We've seen little glimpses in, in Champions League matches in the Bundesliga. Not so much. I think you would have to say he's been the big disappointment. There have been others for Bayern. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, in, in response to your question about the, the, the strength of squad, I think it still is very strong, but maybe not in the way that we would have expected. I mean, Jamal Musiala has emerged as somebody who you can bring on as a substitute and get fantastic production out of. You know, for one so yeah. young, that that is remarkable. I mean, he has set the, um, the, the the league ablaze in a way that the more experienced Zane hasn't. Um, and, you know, Bayern can expect a lot more of that. Um, you know, they have other players who, you know, Alfonso Davies, they struck lucky with, of course, because they didn't really think they were signing a left back when they they brought him in uh, from Canada. 
but he ended up being a left back sort of out of necessity had a bit of a sticky patch at the start of the season lost his place to Lucas Hernandez then got injured but now he's back um I think that the depth is still there though I think that you still you know and, and yes it does sort of get emphasized when somebody like Kimmich is out when somebody like Goretzka is out as has been the case it does yeah. sort of re-emphasize that yeah even a team with depth can be struggling a little bit but I would look forward to in the second half of the season seeing better performances from Zane seeing Tongi Nianzu who's the the young French player who's been injured seeing yeah. more from him um Musiala of course you know I think every expectation that he's going to carry on in the fashion he has been and here's what's really significant Joshua Kimmich who I think almost more than anyone makes Bayern tick he has been absent for the last few games and with his absence has come this little period where Bayern have yeah yeah they've picked up points and they've won most of their games but there, there have been sort of little stutters and they've conceded the first goal seven games in a row didn't stop them winning the game against Leverkusen, the, the top of the table clash just before the break. But Kimmich being back, he for me is the one above all others who really keeps the shape of the Bayern team together, is sort of the, the on-pitch conductor of the orchestra. And it's even better when you have Kimmich and Goretzka uh, in the, the lineup together. They're not identical in terms of their styles. Goretzka is a bit more forward going than, than Kimmich, but they complement each other so well. And um, so, yeah, I, I think the squad depth will still be there. Uh, it might not be perfect. You know, they, they might not have an ideal replacement for Lewandowski. Uh, but then again, could you possibly have a replacement for Lewandowski? Everybody else is going to, to seem a bit like second or third fiddle compared to him. But uh, all yeah. in all, life is good. Yeah. And I mean, another player that often goes under the radar. But for me, I mean... Fans at West Bromwich Albion and Arsenal might be surprised by his uh, upsurge in form, but Serge Gnabry has been excellent during the during the calendar year of 2020. And given the profile of Lewandowski, Kimmich, uh, and obviously given the the form of Alfonso Davis as as well last, last in particular last season, he, he got he often goes unnoticed for me. And he's he's been for me he's essential to the way Bayern Munich play. I would agree with that. I think that Gnabry is somebody who, um, as a wide attacker, is worth his weight in gold to Bayern. That's a big part of how they play. Um, and of course, with Thomas Müller playing slightly more to the centre uh, and off yeah. Lewandowski, you have really two wingers and Gnabry on one side and Kingsley Coman on the other have emerged as the, the first choice players in those positions. And yeah, Gnabry has, you know, the, the genuine goal threat about him. Um, he can beat an opponent, leave him for dead. He can create chances for others. Um, and yeah, uh, so much to like about him. And I'm sure you're right. I'm sure West Brom and Arsenal fans think, my goodness, <laughs> you know, what, what did we, <laughs> what did we lose out <laughs> on here? But because he is certainly a, a, an integral part of, of who Bayern are nowadays in an attacking sense. Yeah. Tony Tony Pulis might be fuming right now because he made that <laughs> odd remark back then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Derek, I mean this probably is it for this episode. Thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I mean I mean we always say this but this has actually been a, a fantastic, fantastic episode. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, guys. It's always great to talk in depth about the Bundesliga rather than on a surface level. And uh, so I appreciate very much your questions. 
And we're back with the Bundesliga uh, match day 14 this weekend. I've had to take a little break on the commentary front because of my location, but I'm delighted to say I'm back in business for the World Feed this weekend, beginning with Hoffenheim Freiburg on Saturday and then Bayern Mainz on Sunday. So um, <clears throat> thoroughly looking forward to that. And um, let me take the opportunity to, opportunity to wish both of you a very happy new year. Same, same. Yes. Same to yes. Felix, same you to... too. You too. And thank you very yeah. much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks, guys. Yeah.